Right. Well, I invite you to take your copy of Scripture this morning and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And uh, as Bobby read the passage for us earlier, uh, we're going to be looking at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1 uh, to 3, uh, verse 5. So that'll be our text this morning. I'll give you just a minute to turn there. Uh, you'll find it on page 986 and 987 in the Bible in front of you, in the chair in front of you there, if you want to use that Bible. And uh, as, as you've turned there, let, let's go to the Lord in prayer, okay? God, we thank you and praise you that even now, uh, for this time, as we come to your word, which is such an important time when you speak to us through your word, that we have all that we need and we can put our total trust in the deep, deep love of Jesus. We thank you that Jesus is absolutely committed to our good, and He has shown that in His death on the cross. And so in this time now, Father, I pray that You, I pray that Your Son, I pray that Your Spirit would bless, that You would bless for Your glory, and that You would do many, many good things in our heart and in our church body as we consider Your Word. And it's through Jesus Christ our Lord we pray, amen. Well, as many as you know, uh, we are in the process of implementing a new shepherding system in our church, and I spoke about that briefly earlier. Uh, Essentially, as we think about this new structure, it amounts to each elder in our church taking responsibility for specific members or families in our church body so that each member or each family of Berea will have one elder who has been assigned to their pastoral care. Okay, so that's what we're doing. Uh, That's what we're moving towards uh, here at Berea. And there's a couple of reasons why we're doing this. So I want to mention those. First of all, on a practical level, uh, on a practical level, we've experienced a good bit of growth in the last two years, which we're very thankful for. Uh, And so when previously we had, say, 20 or 30 members, it was just practically much easier to know the cares and the concerns of each member, and that just kind of happened naturally. Uh, Now that we have close to 100 in membership and on average about 130 in attendance on Sunday mornings, it's more difficult. Uh, And so we as elders here at Berea have to be more intentional to know the cares and the concerns of each member. And uh, as elders, we have to share the responsibility in doing so. So that's just kind of the practical aspect of things in terms of, okay, our church has grown and grown a good bit over the last two years, and so we need to put new structures, new systems in place to facilitate that growth and to care for people well. But then there's also the biblical theological reason why we want to do this, why we want to implement this shepherding system. And this is where I want to spend most of our time this morning. And at this level, we want to ask questions like, why should we as elders and why should we as a church body here at Berea, why should we even be concerned about this whole idea of shepherding or um, a shepherding ministry? Does the Bible have anything to say about this? And if so, what? How should we, according to the Scriptures, understand the relationship between a church and her elders or leaders? And so that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. And what I want us to see 
from our passage this morning, from this text in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and chapter 3, is that God has given His church shepherds for their eternal good. God has given His church shepherds for their eternal good. Now, I recognize that in making that statement, and that's really kind of the thesis of our message this morning, if you want to say it that way, I realize that in making that statement, some may bristle. Perhaps you've had a bad experience with church leadership in the past. I know that's probably the case of some of you who are here this morning. Or perhaps like many in our culture today, you simply, not just as it relates to the church, but just generally distrust leadership. Maybe you have kind of an adverse attitude towards authority or leadership in general. And so let me just say up front that no doubt there are people who misuse or abuse authority that is given to them. And the Scriptures, in fact, speak very openly and honestly about this matter. In particular, as it relates to the church, the Scriptures warn us against bad and unfaithful leaders, and we could turn to many passages that speak of such warnings. Uh, In fact, the Scriptures call unfaithful leaders to account, and, and also in the context of the church, the Scriptures provide certain authority structures so that when a leader is unfaithful, when a leader does misuse their authority, they can be called to repentance and even removed from their position if necessary. So all of that is is true. But, my friends, let me say this, but the Bible, in, in response to unfaithful leadership, the Bible never chunks authority or leadership, like throws it out the window, right? That's not the response of the Scriptures. The the Scriptures never say, well, since some are unfaithful with authority and the leadership that they've been given, well, that was just a bad idea. Let's just do away with that. But instead, the Bible offers an alternative. The Bible holds out the hope that even in a fallen world, that through the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we can enjoy and benefit from imperfect but healthy and effective leadership. And this is what we witness taking place here in our passage between the Apostle Paul and the church in Thessalonica. And so I want us to look at that relationship between Paul and the church and draw out any number of implications and applications. The first thing I want us to see here in our text this morning is four characteristics of Paul's pastoral ministry. This is in verses 1 to 12 of chapter 2, okay? So four characteristics of Paul's pastoral ministry, and this is in verses 1 to 12 of chapter 2. Now let me give you the context a little bit of Paul's ministry in Thessalonica, okay? So Paul's first trip to Thessalonica took place during his second missionary journey, and if you're curious to know what that was like, it's, it's recorded in Acts chapter 17. So later on, uh, you can go to Acts 17 and read about his ministry there. Uh, Paul was actually not in Thessalonica that long uh, because his opponents forced him to flee from the city at night. 
And it seems that as Paul had come to Thessalonica and he had preached the gospel and the church had been established there, and then he met this opposition and he had to flee the city, it seems that now Paul's opponents who are left behind in Thessalonica, it seems that they are using Paul's early departure from the city to attack the Apostle Paul in his ministry. And we can imagine what his opponents were saying about him given Paul's response in defense of his ministry here. We can imagine that his opponents were saying things to the church in Thessalonica like, you see, all Paul wanted when he came to the city, all he wanted was your money and all he wanted was prestige. But when things got tough, you saw what Paul did. He took off and he left you, right? And so as Paul is writing here to the church in Thessalonica, he is giving us characteristics of his pastoral ministry, but he is also defending his ministry. And you see there in chapter 2, verse 2, you see the first characteristic of his ministry. His ministry was fearless. In chapter 2, verse 2, we read, But though we had already suffered and been beaten and had been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. So here what Paul is doing is he's reminding the Thessalonians that before he came to Thessalonica, just prior to that, he had a ministry in Philippi. And in Philippi, what had happened in Philippi was that he and Silas who was a missionary partner of the Apostle Paul, had been falsely accused. They had been stripped of their clothes. They had been publicly humiliated. They had been beaten and thrown in prison. But, Paul says, in spite of that, in spite of the opposition that I faced in Philippi, we, me, and the missionary team that was with me, we came to you and we boldly preached the gospel to you at Thessalonica. And what we see here, as Paul mentions the boldness and the fearlessness of his ministry of the word, is we see that in many ways, this is the first mark of a faithful pastor and spiritual leader, namely an unwavering commitment to the word of God. And if you look here in this text, as Bobby read it for us earlier, Paul's commitment to the revelation of God is undeniable in these verses. Look in verse 2 and we read, We had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God. Verse 4, We have been approved by God to be entrusted with this gospel. Verse 8, We were ready to share with you the gospel of God. Verse 13, When you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. Paul was convinced in his pastoral ministry that God had revealed to us His Word in the Scriptures and in the Gospel, and therefore success in spiritual leadership was to be measured by one's faithfulness to the Word. And so this is the first characteristic of Paul's ministry. A fearlessness, a boldness, a commitment, a fearless and bold commitment to the Word of God. Second characteristic is his honesty. He was honest. Look there in chapter 2, verses 3 through 6, and we read, For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. We never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness." 
Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. So Paul is acknowledging here that there are sinister reasons for people to pursue spiritual or pastoral leadership. For some, we see this in other places in Scripture as well, for some the fundamental reason why one pursues spiritual leadership is for the approval or the glory of others or perhaps for financial gain. In fact, we don't have to turn on our TVs and watch the televangelists too long to know what Paul is talking about. And you should be warned and you should be weary of such individuals. In fact, I was reading this last week in Ezekiel. And Ezekiel the prophet is speaking to the people of Israel. And judgment has come upon the people. And the people are under the discipline of God. And Ezekiel addresses the prophets of his day. And he says, woe to the foolish prophets. Your prophets have been like jackals among ruins. The people are desperate. The people are under the discipline and the judgment of God. And they need the word of God. And they need to be cared for. And yet, Ezekiel says that the prophets are like scavengers among the people. They're only looking out for their own personal gain. Paul, in contrast to that, says, our ministry was not like that. Our ministry to you and the ministry of our team in Thessalonica was not motivated by selfish ends. And listen, why, how, how is it that Paul was able to minister to the church of Thessalonica and, and the missionary team that was with Paul minister them in this way so that they genuinely cared for them and had their best interest at heart? Well, Paul tells us in the text, it was because Paul and his team loved God and longed for God's approval more than they loved even the Thessalonians. Do you see that in the text? He says there, So we speak not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. In other words, because he longed above all for the approval of God, not the approval of men, he was free to love them. He didn't just tell them what they wanted to hear because he was so desperate for their approval. That would be using them, right? If he just so longed for their approval, even more than the approval of God, then he would just tell them what they wanted to hear so that he might be affirmed. But no, he loves God even more than he loves them. And so he tells them what they need to hear, namely the Word of God. And in so doing, he is free to love them and care for them as God would have him do so. So, Paul was fearless in his commitment to the Word. He was honest. Third, third characteristic of his ministry was that he was affectionate. Look there in uh, chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, and we read these words. But we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. Isn't that great? Uh, Paul was gentle and he was affectionate with those that God had entrusted to his care. And it's really hard for us to imagine a more intimate, personal, affectionate relationship than a relationship between a nursing mother and her child. And you know, in a parental relationship like this, if we think about parent and child, it is 
enormously important, not only that a parent love their child, but that an, a, a parent tells their child that they love them, right? That they express it. And what we see here with Paul, and we see this throughout all of, all of the verses here, is that Paul had given his heart away to the Thessalonians. And not only had he given his heart away to them, he expressed it. He told them. I mean, here in this passage, you could say that over and over again, Paul is saying, we loved you and we do love you. Look there in verses 17 and 18 of chapter 2 and we read these words. Listen to the way Paul speaks to the Thessalonians. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again. Do you hear the affection that Paul has for the church? And where did this love come from? Well, it came from the gospel, right? Do you remember Paul's conversion? He was, before he became Paul, he was known as Saul. And uh, he was an opponent to the church of Jesus Christ. He was persecuting and killing Christians before his conversion. And Jesus appeared to him. And he said, Saul, Saul. And do you remember what Jesus said? Why are you persecuting me? Not... Why are you persecuting the church? But why are you persecuting me? Do you see how closely Jesus identifies himself with his people? So that if you are persecuting his people, if you are persecuting his church, Jesus says, you are persecuting me. Jesus so identifies himself with his people and nowhere is this more clearly seen than at the cross when Jesus identifies with his people in their sin and in their guilt and in their shame and takes their punishment so that through faith in him and through faith in his sacrifice they might be forgiven and accepted by God. It has been said that if you love Christ, you will love what he loves And Christ loves His church. And the Apostle Paul loved the church. He was affectionate towards the church. And he told them that he loved them. The fourth characteristic of Paul's ministry to the Thessalonians is that he was fatherly. He was fatherly. Look there in verses 11 and 12, the passage. We read these words. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So not only was Paul motherly in his affection and love for them, but he was also fatherly in his instruction and exhortation. So I've read through the book of Proverbs several times this year, and one of the things that has struck me is that Proverbs is structured, it's laid out in such a way that the father, it's a father addressing a son, right? And so the father is speaking to the son, and one of the things that has struck me is that uh, how the father over and over and over again pleads with his son to give him his heart, to heed his instruction, to receive his words. And here we see in Paul's ministry that there is this proper balance between truth and love. He loves them, and because he loves them, he graciously speaks truth into their lives, as a father would his son. Now, 
given these four characteristics of Paul's ministry, I want to make two quick applications before we move to our next point. First of all, this is the first application, okay, given the four characteristics of Paul's ministry. First of all, you should consider the character of the leadership of a church before joining a church. You should consider the character of the leadership of a church before joining a church. Joshua Harris, in his uh, book entitled Why Church Matters, he provides uh, ten questions to ask before joining a church. And question number five, so there's ten, I won't give you all of them this morning, but question five is, uh, this is the question, is this a church whose leaders are characterized by humility and integrity? He goes on to write, quote, No pastor is perfect, but when it comes to evaluating a church's leaders, you want to find men you can trust and whose example you can follow. And listen, as you consider joining a church, it's important, as I've said, to consider the leaders of that church because in joining the church, you're committing yourself to their pastoral care and oversight. The second application is this. And and this is for us in particular here at Berea, those of us who are members at Berea. We must let the Scriptures be our guide in choosing leaders. We must let the Scriptures be our guide in choosing leaders. Early on in my ministry here at Berea, we made a decision that we would not choose leaders based on the world's standards, but based on biblical standards. It's true that in the church we can be guilty of choosing leadership simply because um, perhaps someone's been successful in business or because they've made a lot of money or because they're particularly self-assertive. And none of those things are wrong. In fact, some of those things can be good if done right. But, listen, none of those things are a criteria for biblical leadership. And because we've made this commitment that we want to choose leaders based on biblical standards rather than worldly standards, I believe, by God's grace, our church has greatly benefited. Our leaders here are by no means perfect, but I praise God that we have been blessed with godly, servant-hearted leaders. And listen, God will bless us as a church if we seek Him and seek to identify such leaders. Folks who love their families, who love their Bibles, who love the church. And in particular, as we think about elders here at our church, those who have been given the primary uh, oversight and spiritual leadership of our body, we are looking for such men who are humble in their opinion of themselves, who are servants in their relationships with others, who are sacrificial in their love for the church and are earnest in their pursuit for Christ. If we pursue such leaders, God will bless us. The second, this is the big point, big point two, okay? So second big point is the two responses to Paul's pastoral ministry. So first big point was four characteristics of Paul's pastoral leadership. Second big point is two responses to Paul's pastoral ministry. And we see this in verses 13 through 16. So we've considered how Paul and his team have ministered among the Thessalonians But naturally, the question then rises, well, how did the Thessalonians respond to the ministry of Paul and his co-workers? And the first response we see is that they received the Word of God. They received the Word of God. Look there in verse 13. 
We read, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. So we've seen that a fundamental aspect, or we could say the fundamental work of a pastor or spiritual leader is the ministry of God's word. And here, uh, what, what, yeah, what we see, let me say this, what we see is that when God blesses a church with men who have a heart to give themselves to the ministry of the word, that is an expression of his grace. But listen, such a ministry does no good to the church if the church does not recognize it as a gift and does not receive the ministry of the Word as an authoritative revelation from God that is to be understood, believed, and obeyed. But listen, that wasn't the case with Thessalonica, right? Thessalonica, as Paul came and as they ministered the Word to them and continued to minister the Word to them, Thessalonica was not resistant to the Word. Thessalonica was not indifferent to the ministry of the Word. Thessalonica was not... um, was not dismissive of the ministry of the Word, but rather they received the Word of God through the leaders that God had given to them. And Paul is rejoicing. Paul's rejoicing. He thanks God constantly, he says in the text, for this, that when they received the Word of God, they received it for what it really was, the Word of God. And what's the result? He says there in the text, it's working in them. The Word of God, that is, is working in them now because they received it as such. You see, the Word is not just advice. The Word is not just self-help. The Word is, in fact, a power. And when one receives it by faith and it enters into one's heart, it begins to work and it begins to change us. And it had worked in the Thessalonians in that they had received the Word and they were converted by the gospel, right? And then as they continued to embrace the Word of God, they were growing spiritually. And as we will see later in the text, they were found faithful in suffering because they had received the Word of God for what it really was, the revelation of God Himself. Listen, one of the things that does my heart great joy here at Berea is even as we come to this time when we look at the Word each Sunday is hearing people get their Bibles out and open them up and follow along in the text, and people taking notes. Why? Because because that makes me feel good that people like to listen to me talk. I hope that's not the reason. But because it's an indication that there's an eagerness to hear the Word of God. And in hearing the Word of God, we will become more like Christ. The second response to Paul's ministry is found in verses 14 through 16. And we see there, not only did they receive the Word as the Word of God, but they were imitators of godliness. You see there in the text, For you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved so as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. Now, we could say a lot about these verses, but just the point I want to make here is that Paul is pointing to any number of examples of individuals and groups of people who faithfully suffered, right? 
So, so first of all, you see the first group there he refers to as the churches in Judea. And we would especially be reminded of the church in Jerusalem. And we can read about the persecution they experienced in the first 12 chapters of the book of Acts. So the apostles were beaten and they were imprisoned. Stephen was stoned to death. James was beheaded. The church was harassed and forced to leave the city. And Paul says, look, as I think about you and your circumstances, I think about the churches in Judea, you've been faithful like them. You've been faithful in the midst of suffering. And then he refers to the Lord Jesus, right? And we know how Jesus was falsely accused and beaten and wrongly executed. And he says, you've been faithful even as Jesus was in suffering. And then he refers to his own ministry and the ministry of the missionary team. And he says, they, that is the opponents of the gospel, they drove us out of the city. And he says, you've been faithful even as we were faithful in your midst to suffer for the sake of the gospel. You see, my friends, leaders never do this perfectly, right? And we surely don't do this perfectly. But spiritual leaders are called to be a flesh and blood example of what it means to believe and to live the Word of God. And the Thessalonians, as they watched the spiritual leaders in their lives, they saw the ways in which they were embracing by faith the Word of God and the Gospel and living that out in their lives, and they followed their example. And so these are the two ways that they responded to Paul and to his team and their leadership. They received the Word of God, and they followed their godly example. This leads me to make the point that at Berea here, we believe very strongly in church membership. And there's many reasons why we do, um, and we could enumerate uh, all of those, but that would take too long this morning. Uh, So I just want to highlight this reason. One of the reasons why we believe it's important for every Christian to to be a member of a local church is that God intends every Christian to experience the benefits of being under pastoral leadership and care. Have you ever considered the exhortations addressing how leaders, and and we find these throughout Scripture, the exhortations that are given uh, regarding how leaders should relate to those who have been entrusted to their care and those who are entrusted to their care, how they should relate to leaders. Have you ever considered how those exhortations just assume church leadership or church membership? Let me give you a couple of examples. In Acts 20, 28, Paul says to the elders in Ephesus, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Now listen, my friends, how, put yourself in the position of the elders there in Ephesus or spiritual leaders in a local body. How are leaders to fulfill that command if they don't know who their flock is, right? If you just kind of have a continual flow of people coming in and out in terms of gatherings, but no one ever commits to the leadership, and the leadership never commits to anyone else, and and the people there aren't committing to one another, then who are they in fact responsible for? Or Hebrews chapter 13, verses 17 where the author in Hebrews says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Again, how is one to fulfill 
this command if one has not officially committed himself or herself to a church body and placed themselves under the spiritual care of that body and its leadership. You see, these commands assume church membership, that you've covenanted together and committed yourself to living out the Christian life in the context of the church. And what we see here in our text this morning and so many other passages in Scripture is that this commitment to Christ and His church and being under the care of spiritual leadership in the context of the church is for our eternal good. Notice in these verses that we've read here, notice as a result of the Thessalonians' response to the spiritual leaders that they have been given, that they experienced a tremendous amount of spiritual good. Because they were receptive to the Word of God, and because they had a desire to follow the example of their spiritual leaders, they, one, came to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Two, they experienced significant spiritual growth, as Paul says, even now in our, in your abs- in our absence, we're, we're not even present with you right now. The Word is still doing a work in your heart, in your life. And, as we will see in a moment here, they were found faithful in the midst of suffering. And God did much of this work through the church and through the spiritual leaders that He had given to them. Now listen, let me say, I am by no means the Apostle Paul, okay? Not even close. <laughs> and, and our elders here at our church are not his missionary team. I guess every church could dream of being led by the Apostle Paul and his missionary team, okay? And, and listen, we here at Berea are not the church in Thessalonica that was known among all the other churches for their faithfulness in the midst of intense persecution, But nonetheless, my friends, what we see here is that this is God's plan. For centuries, all over the world, God has birthed churches from rather ordinary people. And He has raised up rather ordinary men to serve as leaders in those churches. And when the leaders of those churches honestly seek to be faithful to God and His Word, and the people in those churches are generally receptive to that leadership that God has given them, the church is blessed and helped and built up, and the gospel is advanced. This is God's design for us as Christians. And it is for our eternal good. Third, we see, and this is the last point, third big point, okay? So we looked at the four characteristics of Paul, the two responses from the church in Thessalonica to his ministry, and then third, and this will be much shorter, what is at stake in the relationship between church leaders and their people? What is at stake in the relationship between church leaders and their people? This is in verses... uh, chapter 2, verses 17 through 3, 5. I'm going to just read verses 1 to 5 of uh, chapter 3. So verse 1, Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith, that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we were destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. 
Now, notice here that in, uh, we should just take note of this, that in contrast to so much quote-unquote prosperity teaching that we see from church leaders today, Paul was intent on providing the Thessalonians with a theology of suffering. Do you see that there in verses 3 and 4? For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. This is suffering. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. And so Paul had prepared them well. He had given them a theology of suffering as he says in other places, it is through much affliction that we will enter into the kingdom of God. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, right? So so Paul had given them a theology of suffering, and now the the suffering has come, right? So the church in Thessalonica is being persecuted, and it seems that some there in the church are disillusioned and distraught. And so this is why Paul is uh, eager to see them. You see it there in the text. He says, I could bear it no longer. He can't come to them. He's continuing to be hindered from going to them. And so he says, I couldn't bear it any longer, though I had to know how you were doing. And so I sent Timothy, another spiritual leader, right, to go and to check on you. And why? He says in verse 2, to establish and exhort you in your faith, given the persecution that you're experiencing. And then in verse 5, Paul reveals to us his ultimate concern. He's concerned for them that they're suffering persecution and this affliction, and he wants to exhort them. He wants to establish them in their faith. And in verse 5, here's his ultimate concern, for fear that somehow the tempter, that is Satan, had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. This is his ultimate concern. That they are being tempted by Satan, and not just a temptation to sin in general, but they are being tempted to commit the sin of apostasy. In other words, because of the affliction and the suffering and the persecution that they are enduring, they are being tempted to forsake their faith in Christ, to give up, to walk away from it. Their salvation is at stake. And this is why Paul is so eager to come to them. Now, I know some might object and say, Well, but God is sovereign, and if God saves someone, He keeps them, and He always keeps who are His, and if they're truly saved, they won't be lost. And that is absolutely true. Yes, that's true. But it's also true that God uses means. God uses means to keep His people. And one of the means that God has chosen to use to keep His people in faith and in their faith in Christ is the fellowship of a local body and the leadership that He has given to that community. And so, would we say, well, God keeps His own, so I don't need to read my Bible, or I don't need to pray, or I don't need to serve other people? No. That would be foolishness, right? And God uses many means, and and this is not the only means by any stretch of the imagination, but one of the means that God uses for the eternal good of His church and to keep His people is His church and the leadership that He has blessed His church with. And so our prayer as elders here at Berea is that the ministry of the elders here at this local body would be for your eternal good. That through the preaching and teaching ministry of the church, that through our prayers for you, that through our leadership, that through our pastoral care and concern for you, that through our instruction and private exhortation, 
that you would experience something of the grace and the mercy of God in your life. Our prayer also is that God would use the ministry of our church and the relationship that you have with others in our body and relationships that you have with the leaders of our body to grow you in your faith and to sustain you in your pursuit of Christ. And let me just say, it is an absolute joy that we get to participate in this ministry. We do love you. And as Paul says here, you are our crown and our joy, and we want to see you presented to Christ one day, fully mature in Him. And then I would also say, pray for us. Pray for us. Pray that God would give us grace to lead and shepherd you well. And if God grants that prayer, and I trust that He will, it will be for your eternal good. And this is the reason, my friends, that we are seeking to put this shepherding system in place. It's because we want to know you as your pastors. And we want to care for you well, for your eternal good. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you so much for your word. And Lord, um, perhaps oftentimes we wonder, like, okay, I believe this gospel and I want, to, I want to be faithful to Christ and I want to be faithful to the gospel. I want to grow as a Christian. How am I to do that? And Lord, we thank you that your word is so clear that we don't have to try to figure it out on our own. But Lord, you lay out for us in your word how it is you would have us to live as Christians and relate to one another as Christians. How we are to do church. How we're to pursue mission. Lord, we thank you for your word. Father, we thank you for the relationship that existed between Paul and the church in Thessalonica. And Lord, we thank you for the things that we can learn from that. Help us, Lord, as a body to be faithful in all these matters. And Lord, we pray that you would continue to grow us as a church. We pray that we would increasingly be a reflection of Christ and the gospel. And we pray that you would increasingly use us to reach this community and the nations for your name's sake. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen.